Thank you, choir, for that beautiful song, and Bill and Miss Glenda for leading today. And uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we get into our time of study. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning knowing that your word is truth, knowing that you have spoken, and you have spoken clearly through your prophets, through the history of Israel, and ultimately and finally through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that during this moment of study, Lord, that you would shape us around your word, that you would shape us through your word, that we would be reproved and corrected, and that we would be directed to righteous living in accordance with your will. Father, bless me and give me the words to say that I might encourage and build up. Lord, clear my mind that I might focus clearly and, and speak clearly to these people And Lord, that they would have clear minds and clear hearts as well, that you would open their hearts and their minds to receive the truth of your gospel. And that we all might leave here changed from one degree of glory into another, into the image of your Son. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So this sermon's going to be a little different than you might have experienced before because, as is typical with sermons, we begin with the passage that... The sermon is based around, but I'm not going to begin with the passage that is kind of my focal passage for today. Uh, But I will go ahead and tell you what it is and let you go ahead and be turning there. It's Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4. So you can turn there, but also we're going to cover not word for word, but chapter by chapter, uh, we're going to, our idea by idea, we're going to cover about 11 chapters in the book of Exodus too. So buckle up, we're going to move through this pretty quickly. But uh, if you want to, if you have a Bible that has headings in it, then I would encourage you to turn to about chapter 25 of the book of Exodus, hold your finger in Ephesians chapter 4, and flip over to Exodus chapter 25, and we're going to look at all of that uh, in in a kind of a, a thirty thousand foot view as we fly through the book of Exodus and remind you of some of the things that happened there, um, but the reason I want to look at all that today is because if you've noticed we've been working through this this sub series and my study on the doctrine of worship where we've looked at the where and when of uh, of worship and we've covered personal worship, where and when we worship God in our own personal lives. We've covered family worship, where and when we worship as a family. And then lastly, we started last week to look at the where and when of congregational worship. And so last week we looked at this idea that started with Old Testament Israel, the idea of our week being formed around the worship of God. And how even the time we dedicate to God matters. And we saw that in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 6. How God has established His law for the purpose of helping His people to remain faithful to Him. Remember Deuteronomy 6, the passage we've read every time we've been in this study so far, has been to say, has ended with the statement that, We need to serve God and Him alone. And that if we're going to remain in faithfulness to God, then we need to follow His commandments. His commandments are not given for our harm. His commandments are given for our good. 
And so last week we saw how the Sabbath commandment is not a, a harm to us. It's not something to say, oh, you can't work on that day or you can't play on that day or you can't do anything you want to do on that day. But rather, it's a day to make us stop and to rest and to enjoy the blessings of God. And it's a day for remembrance where we're called as God's people to gather together so that we will remember what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So there, God establishes these means, these ways in which He keeps us in faithfulness. One of those is the Sabbath, but another one of those is the place in which we gather together as God's people. And if we continue with that idea of God's laws being for our good and God's laws being a means of keeping us faithful, then we have to consider when God gave the law to Israel first. And so, like I said, let's just do a real quick Passover of Exodus chapter 20 through 31. Like I said, if you've got a Bible that's got... Uh, headings in it, this will be helpful. If not, then just follow along with me in your mind and just remember what you've been taught. But if you'll remember back to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20 is the first time that the Ten Commandments are given in the Bible. And in Exodus chapter 20 through chapter 24, God lays out all of these commandments and these ordinances, all these different ways that the Ten Commandments apply. And then flip over to Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. God brings, or Moses brings all the people together on Mount Sinai after giving them all this law. And by the way, this is all given as one big long sermon. So, uh, like I said before, you ain't got, uh, I ain't got nothing on Moses. You can't complain about me. Moses went for hours preaching, okay? But, um, but, he goes through all these laws and then in Exodus chapter 24 verse 3 he calls on the people to respond and they respond by saying this all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do they covenant there with God to be faithful to keep his law and then just one chapter over flip over to Exodus chapter 25 verse 8 Immediately following that confirmation of the people of Israel, God tells the people in Exodus 25 verse 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So then you would think, okay, so God tells the people of Israel to make a sanctuary. So the Israelites are going to go out and they're going to hire an architect and they're going to come up with some favorite designs and they're all going to have a big business meeting and they're going to fight over their favorite color, right? Because that's what we do as Baptists. And they're, and they're going to argue over every little thing and they're, go, they're, they're going to finally come up with some compromise that everybody's going to like or nobody's going to like, whatever the case may be. And they're going to build a, a, a sanctuary. But that's not what happens. For the next Six chapters, God Himself, as the architect of His own sanctuary, details with exquisite detail how this tabernacle is to be designed. From chapter 25 through chapter 31, there is this detailed account of 
all of the different aspects of this sanctuary that is to be built where God will dwell. Now, if you've read through the Bible, uh, you know that this is the point at which your eyes start to get heavy. In chapter 25, chapter 26, and on through chapter 31, you start to doze off. And if you want a good good, uh, reading to do on your Sunday afternoon reading before you take your nap, this will be a great introduction to your nap if you want to read chapters 25 through 31. But we tend to kind of pass over or fly over those chapters, but they're very important because God tells precisely how He is to be worshipped. And when we read it, we might think, man, this just seems kind of unnecessary. I mean, after all, can't we just hang out with God? Can't we just chill, God? You know, why do we need all these rules and regulations as to how we're to worship you? Can't we just approach God like we would our best friend or our grandfather? And in short, the answer is emphatically no. No, we cannot just approach God willy-nilly however we want. In the tabernacle design, God is painting a picture. He's literally painting a a picture of how we are to worship God and what is required for Him to dwell with His people. So let me just give you a brief rundown of what the people would have seen in this magnificent tent that God designed for His people. In the center of the tabernacle, if you'll notice, starting in in chapter 25, like I said, if you've got headings, you'll see this. In the center of the tabernacle, and the center of the tabernacle was called the Holy of Holies, there sat the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was basically this cabinet that stored the covenant documents, all the laws that Moses had just expounded to the people. And this this ark, this cabinet, is built out of acacia wood. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen acacia wood. Bill probably has. But acacia wood is like mahogany. It's this dark, beautiful wood. And on top of this cabinet is a lid that is poured, molded, pure gold. Not plated gold, but pure gold. And on top of that lid is sculpted two cherubim. Now, these are angelic beings with six wings, and typically they had animal heads. They were strange-looking things. But they were basically guards of the throne of God. And so these cherubim sat on the, what the Bible calls the glory seat, where God's presence would literally descend onto this cabinet. So within that same room, though, there was, there's more stuff. There's a table that's centered in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And on this table is a loaf of bread. And that bread was to always be kept in the tabernacle. And then lastly, there's a golden lampstand. And this lampstand's got all sorts of, uh, or is a big lampstand with uh, several lamps on it. The Bible details how many there are, and you can go read that yourself. But I just want you to imagine for a moment what this would have looked like if you had had the privilege of being a priest that could have gone into the Holy of Holies. Just imagine for a moment 
walking into this place with all of this gold and all of this soft lamp light, it would have just glimmered with all of the gold and all of the setting that you would have witnessed. And notice, at the center of God's life with His people, there are three things that we're supposed to notice. There are three things that God required for the, center, for the fellowship with His people. First of all, covenant. Second, communion. And third, clarity. So God's relationship with His people was centered around His covenant that He had made with them. It's based on the covenant that they... Uh, it's based on this covenant that they could approach God. Now, this is important for us to understand. Brothers and sisters, friend, if you're an unbeliever, you cannot approach God of your own fruition. You cannot approach God, just say, hey, uh, you know, God, I want to make God my friend. I want to come to Him. And I'm just going to walk up and do things my own way. I'm going to approach Him, approach him without any... Uh, reservation or and I'm going to assume that God will accept me just the way I am. You cannot approach God as you are. God must approach you first. God must make a covenant with you before you can be in right relationship with him. It is not that we can just make God accept us because we're the coolest kid, cat on the block or because we're loved by our parents and therefore God ought to love us too. It's not as though, like this society believes that we're acceptable just the way we are and God needs to mold to who we are. But rather, we can only approach God if God first approaches us. We must first be in covenant with God before we can have a right relationship with Him. And God's presence with His people Israel was based first and solely, really, on His covenant with them. Second, God... uh, So, second, through that covenant, the people of Israel were able to have communion with God. So you notice there's in the center of the Holy of Holies is a table with bread on it. And this bread was called the bread of the presence. So this bread was meant to symbolize communion with God. It was meant to symbolize the fact that Israel literally sat down and ate with God. And so God's relationship with his people would be uh, centered around his presence with them through this tabernacle. And then third, through that same covenant, the people of God had clarity. It is because of their relationship with God, because of their direct, direct access to God, that He had, had given them His wisdom. They had the wisdom of God. They had the law of God. The rest of the world ran around in darkness, not knowing what God's expectations were for them, not knowing what God required of them. But God had given to Israel the very law of God, the very word of God, so that their whole lives could be shaped around God's wisdom. God would, like that lampstand in the middle of the Holy of Holies, God would be their light. 
So then, starting in chapter 27 of the book of Exodus, the commands turn to the sacrifices. So in a great deal of detail, God commands how the altar is to be made, how the garments of the priest are to be made, and how the priests are to be ordained. And all of that sacrifice and, and uh, ceremony communicated on a daily basis that the people could not approach God without a sacrifice and a mediator. So just like I said, we can't approach God without Him first making a covenant with us. In the same way, the people of Israel would have recognized that we cannot approach God without a sacrifice. So I want you to think about this, and I didn't really think about it that much until I watched, a, you might have seen the, the uh, television series called The Bible, and they do a really fantastic job of portraying how Israel sacrificed. And it's, it's, it's pretty gory, but it's worth going and watching. And what is disturbing about it, we don't realize it because we're so sanitized nowadays. We're removed from our food. We don't watch things get slaughtered unless you're dealing directly with that as your business. We don't watch, uh, we don't go out and, men, not many of us go out and wring a chicken's neck every, uh, every week to have something for the pot. We don't, we don't do that anymore. And so we're removed from death. But I want you to think about how sacrifices that occur on a daily basis that are offered by millions of people, not not hundreds of people, not thousands of people, but millions of people on a weekly basis are offering doves and goats and rams and all of these different animals for sacrifices. I want you to think about what that would have looked like. And the Bible series that I'm talking about does a really interesting thing, and they show how the blood would have run down the streets. We don't think about that, but blood in the thousands of animals would fill up the drainage systems of our streets. It would run constantly. The temple and the altar were covered in blood. So that if you, if you went to the temple to get into the temple, to walk down the street to get into the temple, you would have stepped across flowing blood as you did. Which was a constant reminder that you could not enter that temple, you could not approach the presence of God without a sacrifice. You could not approach God without Him first accepting you through a covenant without Him first offering a sacrifice for you. This place where God dwelled with His people, it was beautiful, it was gracious, but it was also terrifying because it was a reminder of the death that was required for our acceptance. And yet... The people of Israel failed to see God's good gift dwelling with them. Instead, they assumed that God would always accept them because they had the right kind of blood. They were of the right race. Kind of like we these days assume that because we're American and because we're born in the South, that we're acceptable. But they assumed that they were acceptable before God because they were Jewish and they could just come to God like they wanted to. 
And so they treated God's good present, good gift in His presence with them through the Ark of the Covenant. They treated it like a good luck charm. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Levites got a bright idea. They were getting ready to fight the Philistines. They get a bright idea that, hey, let's take the Ark of the Covenant and let's march it out in front of us as we go into battle. And the Philistines kick their tail. And they kicked their tail so bad that they took the Ark of the Covenant and they took it into Philistia. They defeated Israel and took the Ark of the Covenant. It's a fascinating story. You should go read it. It's, a, it's really kind of an interesting story in the book of 1 Samuel. Later, when the people settled in the land and built a temple to Jerusalem, uh, built a temple in Jerusalem, they profaned God's presence time and again. They broke laws and they offered sacrifices that were unacceptable before God. They erected idols in and around the temple. And for their disobedience, God brought total destruction to Jerusalem, to the temple, and He led the people away into exile. And when they finally all returned, or when they were allowed to return and rebuild the temple, there was a noticeable difference with the second temple that was built. It had all the same design, all the same specification, but something was missing. Even though they built it per the same design, God's presence would never return to it. But then, some, two, some 400 years later, a little boy would be brought into the temple by his young mother and father to be dedicated. And an old man named Simeon led by the Spirit of God, found that boy. And he praised God saying, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That little baby named Jesus was the very presence of God with His people. John says that Jesus is the Word of God. And he explains in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. When Jesus preached, He spoke about a new temple that had come. In John 2, 19, He told the religious leaders that if they were to tear down this temple, speaking of His body, He would rebuild it in three days. In John chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus tells the woman at the well that the hour is now here when people will no longer worship on a mountain or in a temple, but people will worship God in spirit and in truth. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have been brought near to God. It is because of what Christ has done for us by, that we, by faith, now have the presence of God residing in us through His Holy Spirit. So the place where congregational worship happens is not in a temple or in any building. Understand this, brothers and sisters. There is nothing sacred about this building. There is nothing sacred about the architecture of this building the, the way it was built, who built it, nothing sacred about this. The only thing that is sacred about this building is that a few times a week, the people of God meet here. Right. It is the people 
who are the church. Not this building. We could meet out there under those trees. We could meet out here in this parking lot. We could meet at a coffee shop. We could meet at someone's home. We could meet anywhere in the world. And the God's presence would be there because His church is there. Where His church is, there the presence of God is experienced. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul is saying here that those who have trusted in Christ are like living bricks that God is gathering together and He's building a temple out of these living bricks. Like Jesus said, it's not a place where God's presence dwells, but it is a people in which God's presence dwells. So when we gather together, we are the temple of God, wherever we are. And brothers and sisters, we must, hear me now, we must meet together. Just like Israel was called to build a tabernacle so that they might be kept in faithfulness, so too we are called to join together as a temple so that God might dwell with us. Just as Israel was called to center all of their lives around the tabernacle, so too we are called to center all of our lives around fellowship with one another. But you might be thinking, but why? You know, all of that's great and fine and good, Pastor, and we can do that. We can commit to that. But why would we gather together as God's people every week? For that, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 16. I told you we'd look at it, so we're finally getting to it. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Follow along with me as I read that passage. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he has also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we, have all, uh, until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, Paul gives three reasons that we should gather together in congregational worship. And real quickly, I want you to notice these three reasons. First, Paul says in verses 1 through 6 that we must gather together for the sake of covenant unity. Notice in verse 1, Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. If you're in Christ, just like the people of Israel were called to walk in faithfulness, you are called to walk in faithfulness. You're called to walk in a way that exemplifies the calling that you have received in Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? We do that, Paul says in verse 2, by bearing with one another. We do that by building up one another, by carrying each other's burdens, by loving one another. But we have to ask, how do we do that? Because we're different. Every one of us in this room is different. We all come from different backgrounds. We come from different places in life. We come from different age groups. We're all different. So how do we, as a bunch of people who come from, and we may be all, most of us on Sandcut Road, but we come from different points and places in this life. How do we build one another up? We do that because we are all united around one person. We are all united around one spirit. We are all united around one baptism. We are all united in one body. We do that because regardless of where we come from, we all agree on one thing. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, one with God, the resurrected King of the world, and He has died for our sins and risen again for our justification. We all agree on that. And so we can put aside our differences. We can put aside our preferred color of paint or our preferred color of, of carpet. We can put aside how we want things to be run in the church, and we can agree that Jesus is Lord. And we must come together to be reminded of that. We can't agree if we're at our separate houses. We have to come together to agree and to exemplify the oneness of God in our faith together. Second, in verses 7 through 12, we should gather for the sake of communion. Now by that, I don't mean communion as the Lord's Supper, even though we should gather together for that. But Paul says here that each one of us, everybody who is a believer, everybody who is a member of this church has been gifted with a certain gift or a certain set of gifts. In verse 11, 
He also says that there have been some specific gifts that have been given in apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. But all of these gifts, whether it's your gift in hospitality or your gift in prayer or my gift in preaching, all of those gifts are given for one reason. Notice that reason in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, every one of you has been given a gift that benefits this congregation. You were not made to hoard those gifts. You were not made to sit there on your pew, come to Sunday morning service, leave, and never benefit the church. You were made to edify this church through the gifts that you've been given. That might be something like maintaining the air conditioner in the fellowship hall. By the way, it's broken right now. Anybody with a special a spiritual gift in air conditioners can fix it after the congregation. It might be in making coffee before Sunday school. It might be in teaching Sunday school. It might be in a thousand different ways, but you are gifted with a purpose for this church, and in those gifts you edify your brothers and sisters in Christ. You were made to benefit the church and the world in your gifts. And notice, that's the whole reason for my ministry as your pastor. Notice in verse 12 what Paul doesn't say. That pastors and teachers, he doesn't say that they are given to us so that we could get a good laugh once a week. Or so that we could feel better about ourselves and have a positive attitude when we leave church on Sunday. Or that he'll care for us when we're sick. Or that he'll be the CEO of the church. It doesn't say any of that. No, the, the role of the pastor, the responsibility of the pastor, the responsibility of the teacher, the responsibility of anyone who has a teaching responsibility in this church is to equip the saints for the kingdom of God. It is to equip the saints so that you might serve the Lord and draw closer to Christ. That is what I am here to do. That's what you're called to do if you teach in any responsibility in the church. You are called, I am called to equip you. Lastly, in verses 13 through 15, Paul tells us that we should gather for the sake of clarity. Paul says that the end goal of all of the gifts that God has given to the church is so that we might attain the measure of the fullness of Christ. He says that we should grow up, literally. He says it's time, uh, you children in the faith, to grow up, to be made, to grow from children who are tossed about by every whim of doctrine to mature men and women who know what they believe and why they believe it. Brothers and sisters, you, every one of us in this room, are called to grow in our faith in Christ. And by the way, we don't just meet on Sunday morning for Sunday school and, and, and church and Sunday night and Wednesday night just because we like to get together, although that is part of it. We meet so that we might grow. The whole reason we study Hard on Sunday night and in Sunday school and on Wednesday night is so that we would grow in our faith. You are called, each one of us, to be mature. Not to be little kids who barely know what they believe, but to grow up and to know what you believe and why you believe it. 
Brothers and sisters, you cannot, hear me on this, you cannot live the Christian life on your own. Biblically speaking, and I I like to add a little radical statement in here every week, and this is it. Biblically speaking, from Scripture, there is no such thing as a Christian who is not living in fellowship with the church. There's no such thing. Now, we've made it that way in our modern culture to where church is an add-on to everything else we do. But in Scripture, there is no such thing as a Christian who lives apart from fellowship in the church. You cannot, you cannot maintain your faith by yourself. You cannot faithfully worship by yourself. So to those who would say, I don't need church to be a Christian. I can worship God just fine by myself. I would say, wrong. Just as one brick does not make a temple and one finger does not make a body, so too you cannot rightly glorify God apart from membership in and participation with the church. Now, let me just address something that a year ago, no pastor would have ever thought they'd have to address. But in the past year, we've had to adopt to to keep our membership engaged. We've had to adopt virtual church. We have it on right now. And I hope there are people watching and and we, uh, we can benefit them. But let me just address the issue of virtual worship. Because in the 21st century, in 2021, I have to. First of all, let me say, this ministry here with our tablet and the videos we share on Facebook is a great ministry for those who are sick or who are quarantined or who are on vacation and not able to be here for Sunday worship or or, uh, several different reasons that we can have. But the main reason we started it and the main reason we're maintaining it is for those who are sick or shut in or who are unable to be here because of COVID or because of restrictions, their concerns for COVID. But there are a couple of things that I want to say about virtual worship, just to clarify it. First of all, virtual worship is not congregational worship. Virtual worship is not a replacement for what we are doing right here. Virtual worship, I would consider to be a form of personal or family worship. In fact, I told the deacons that I will not call it a congregational worship service. You'll notice if you go back and look at my video that I did when I was quarantined with COVID in February, I said that it was family worship time. Because if we do it again, if we have to be quarantined again, we will, we will do it as a form of family worship. But we're not going to call it congregational worship because it's not. This right here, where we're gathered together, is congregational worship. And secondly, you cannot use your gifts or be edified by the presence with other congregational members virtually. You just can't do it. We all have realized that over the last year. It's just impossible to do. And then lastly, like I said, it's great for the sick. It's great to address COVID issues and things like that. But if you are going to other places, 
If you're going to the restaurant, you're going to a concert, you're going to the beach, you're going to all these other places, then you can come here to worship. Amen. You can do it. So, with all that being said, we have to be gathered together. We have to be gathered together to build our faith. We have to be gathered together to worship God. We have to be gathered together to experience the presence of God. It is in this gathered community that God uses other people to encourage us and strengthen us in our faith. It is in this gathered community that God's presence is clearly seen in the life of other believers. It's in this gathered community that we find the truth of God revealed. May we all commit to faithfully gathering with God's people so that we might build one another up in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time that we've had to gather together as your people in this place. Lord, I pray that we would indeed take it seriously. Lord, I thank you for these that have gathered today who do evidently take it seriously and believe in the gathering of your people. Lord, I pray that we would edify one another and that you would gain the glory through it. Lord, I pray that your presence would be sensed here as we sing songs and as we hear your word proclaimed Sunday in and Sunday out. Father, bless us now as we respond to the gospel in Christ's name I pray. Amen.